Hey everyone, welcome to the More to Movement podcast, the show about why your movement matters and how to get optimal results through science-backed practical solutions. Today is part five of my Mobilize and Move series, and I am diving into the fourth phase of my PUMP process to enhance our movement and mobility. PUMP is an acronym with each letter representing a significant phase of mobility. And when put together, we have a great functional approach to enhancing our movement and improving our mobility. Let's get to this phase. Back right after this. Welcome to the More to Movement podcast, where we break down the science behind movement and provide you with tangible takeaways so you can take charge of your health and fitness and achieve lasting results. If you're ready to optimize your efforts, move with purpose, and invest in your health and performance with confidence and vigor, you've come to the right place. Here's your host, Pete Rowletter. What's up, movers? Welcome back to the show, and thanks so much for being here with me. Today is part five of my Mobilize and Move series, and as you know, this episode, as well as the next episode, will wrap up the series. And remember, the series was dedicated to going through each phase of the pump process to enhance your mobility. And we're doing that so that you get a great grasp on all of the stages that are necessary to really enhance movement and your mobility efforts. So to quickly recap, what have we covered so far? The first P of the pump process. P stands for proper position. U stands for undo hypertonic and shortened tissue. And the first M stands for mitigate joint capsule restriction. And in that episode, we chatted about utilizing banded joint distraction techniques as well as banded flossing techniques to address joint position restriction along with the tissue from those previous steps that we've covered. I said this in the last episode, but the previous three alone by themselves would improve your mobility and function. But like I said last time, why stop there? Let's attack our movement restriction from all angles. And so it's time for the second M of the pump process. But before I tell you what it is, I want to give you a visual to paint a picture of why this phase is so important. Okay, go with me here. Have you ever seen a cheer team's performance where they toss a flyer way up in the air? It's actually pretty spectacular to watch, but it's not as easy as just throwing her up in the air. You have a base and typically it's of two people and they have to work together to toss the flyer in the air. Their timing has to be on point and they have to apply equal force and they have to apply that force in the same direction. That direction is up because if not, the flyer may not achieve the launch or worse, the flyer may be thrown to the left or the right and everyone has to scramble to catch her before she hits the ground. This visual helps us see the importance of how proper muscle contraction contributes to movement. Now, we've discussed hypertonic tissue, and of course, that tissue does play a considerable role in movement dysfunction, but y'all, there's another side to this coin that we got to talk about. Believe it or not, many movement problems are caused or made worse by muscles not doing their job. Like the flyer example, if the base don't do their job, the outcome is inefficient. Sometimes muscles lay down on the job, so to speak, whether it's in response to overactive tissue or the habitual poor positions and movement patterns we reinforce, some muscles just stop contributing as they should. They just stop. We need to address that if we want to optimize our movement and our mobility. So with that in mind, the second M of the pump process stands for muscle activation. For movement to be efficient and forceful, several things need to happen. First, motor units need to be recruited. When we talk about motor units, we're talking about a motor neuron in the muscle fiber innervates or communicates with. 
Understanding this a little bit is important because motor units help us control the rate and force of muscle contractions, allowing us to move at different levels of force and speed for a given task. A lot can influence motor units, such as force needed for the movement, the contraction speed needed, the type of contraction occurring, and the muscle's metabolic state. For those to be optimal, we have to consider rate coding and synchronization. Rate coding and synchronization. Let's talk about those. Rate coding. Rate coding refers to the frequency a motor unit fires. As intensity increases, so does the rate. This impacts synchronization. And what's that? Well, synchronization is the simultaneous activation of numerous motor units. When we start looking at complex or compound movements, muscle fibers must fire and activate quickly for movement to be efficient and forceful. Makes sense, right? The more complex something is, muscles got to be on point and they got to contract in a certain rate and at a certain time and in a certain order. It's really important. Have you ever listened to an orchestra or a band where one instrument is not on time and plays the wrong notes? What happens to the quality of that piece? It goes into the gutter. It's terrible. You can see where this is headed. If there's a disruption in motor unit activation, we will see a decrease in firing rate which can interrupt the synchronization needed to carry out the movements. Since some muscles are not pulling their weight, we start to see something called synergistic dominance, where some muscles work overtime to make up for the lack of contribution. This compensation will impact the force-coupled relationships, which will alter length-tension relationships and ultimately create significant imbalance in the body, leading to movement dysfunction. Now, if some of those terms were a little confusing for you, Head back to my Principles of Movement series. I do a whole series on some of these foundational concepts that kind of help understand what I'm talking about. So if this was a little bit confusing, go back to those first few episodes and check those out. Now, let me give you an example that is impacting most people. I've harped about prolonged sitting, and here's yet another log on the fire to get you kind of thinking about this and to make you stand up, right? We know sitting wreaks havoc, so... Here's just another example to kind of drive this point home. Sitting, especially in like soft cushioned seats, decreases the requirements of the glute muscles to activate. Their tone begins to decrease and stops engaging as they should. And the crazy thing is you don't have to be sedentary for this to happen. I can't tell you how many people I've worked with who are active, but also sit for long periods of the day. Though they're active, that position that they're in most of the day creates tissue adaptations and it causes problems. Typically, what you'll see are movements that are quadricep and trunk dominant, and they'll also have really tight hip flexors that usually accompany that. We'll also see most of their hip extension movements carried out by their hamstring rather than their glutes. This combination of weak glutes, overactive hip flexors, and weak core stabilizers typically anteriorly tilt the hips. To give you a visual of this, an extreme case of APT would be something like duck butt, where somebody has a significant arch in their lower back and and their butt or their glutes seem to stick way out. That would be a really good visual of an anterior pelvic tilt or APT. Now, if you have an anterior pelvic tilt, typically it's going to lead to back pain. It's going to decrease movement proficiency. It's also going to decrease your strength potential. Remember, a weak muscle doesn't mean it won't produce force. It will. But the question is, will it produce the right amount of force at the right time? I like to teach this concept with the image of a scale. We want that scale to be as balanced as possible. On one side, we have that hypertonic tissue that is 
dominating the scale, right? It's tipping it to one side. On the other side, we have hypotonic or underactive tissue that we just described on the other, which is not contributing to the scale. So we have this imbalance. Now we've addressed the hypertonic tissue by decreasing the restriction, which lessens the weight on one side of the scale. Now it's time to address the underactive side and add a little weight to it to balance out the scale. The way we do that is we wake up the tissue so it starts contributing again. What we're really doing is increasing neural drive to the tissue. We have to bring attention to the tissue so it receives the signal to increase recruitment. We can't just jump right into a big complex move and hope they turn on. We have to single it out a bit and give it some attention. My favorite way to do this is called positional isometrics. Isometric contractions are contractions without movement. So the muscle is at a fixed length. A great example of an isometric exercise is a plank. Everybody does those, so this is a good visual. The muscles are contracting, but there isn't any movement going on. But for this technique, we want to be a little bit more specific. This technique is excellent because it can heighten the tissue's activation due to the high tension levels that it creates. Actually, isometric contractions create more tension than concentric contractions. Further, isometric contractions can enhance motor unit recruitment and rate coding. That's one of the issues that started this whole thing. So by improving the nervous system's function, we address and begin to correct those problems. Now this technique is usually performed at end range of motion, but I like to mess around with positions of weakness. Here's a test for you. Try this out. Take a muscle and a joint through a full range of motion, but move very slowly, pausing every few degrees and hold it for about five seconds. Now, after you do that, ask yourself, were there any phases during that movement where the tissue felt off or a bit shaky or weak? That could be indicative of a disruption in the activation of that tissue at that position. Now, that's an excellent place to start with a positional isometric technique. So how do we do it? Well, typically when I teach this technique, I teach it as a partner technique. Typically I'm working with future professionals. And so these future professionals would be utilizing these techniques on their clients. So with the partner technique, one person can hold the joint in a position while the other contracts. And if you have somebody great, this will be great to do this with. But if not, there are some ways to accomplish this solo. So let's jump into them. Number one, you want to find something immovable. Here are three things that I use. I use a wall, I use a door frame, and I use my squat rack. You may not have the last one, but you probably have the first two. Number two, you want to position yourself so that the muscle you want to activate will be pushing or pulling against the immovable helper. For example, if I want to engage my glutes, I can lie down on my side on the ground with my back up against the wall long ways. So I can push my leg back into the wall, which would target my glutes. If I want to target my rhomboids or my middle traps, I could sit on the ground in a door frame with my elbows against the door frame and I can drive my elbows back to engage those muscles. Number three, you always want to breathe and maintain proper position. This goes back to the first P of the pump process, but if you're twisting and disengaging your core, you're working against yourself. Make sure you position yourself first before you engage. Number four, build up the intensity of the contraction. Start really easy. 
Hold that contraction for four to five seconds. Then increase the intensity with each subsequent repetition until you reach your MBC or your maximal voluntary contraction. Try to reach that point in four to five repetitions with only a few seconds rest between each repetition. That's key. We don't want to go all out right away. We want to make sure that we are engaging the right tissue and that we are slowly increasing intensity so that tissue maintains its engagement and we maintain focus on the tissue that we want to hit. Now, don't be surprised if you have some soreness or even cramp when you do this the first couple times. Remember, you're activating tissue that has been sleeping a bit. Think about it. Do any of you like to be jolted awake by somebody? Probably not. Your tissue is not going to like being woken up so aggressively either. Just got to keep that in mind. Okay, here's your takeaway for today. Find some tissue that is tight and restricted. Hopefully, that should be easy because you've listened to my previous episodes and been identifying and started addressing some of that hypertonic tissue already. So if you have, good for you. Rock on. Whatever muscle or tissue it is, I want you to find the muscle on the opposite side of the joint. Often that muscle is going to be underactive compared to the overactive tissue on the other side. Then test it. Take it through an active range of motion like I mentioned before. Pause every few degrees and see if you notice anything. If you notice anything, perform a few repetitions of a positional isometric. Write down what you feel. Did you fatigue out? Did you cramp? Did your body want to start twisting to help? All of that is valuable information and you can revisit it as you develop and see how far you've come. So for example, if your anterior deltoid is tight, remember the anterior deltoid is the front shoulder muscle. That one's tight or overactive. The fibers on the opposite side of the shoulder, which would be the posterior deltoids, are probably going to be underactive. And in many cases they are. All right. Everyone, we have almost covered the entire process. So let's recap. You have the first P, which is proper position. U, undo hypertonic and shortened tissue. M, mitigate joint capsule restriction. And now the second M, muscle activation. We have one more phase of this process, and I think it will complete the circle. I really do. And with this process, I think you can sustain an effective and efficient means to improving and maintaining your mobility and movement. I really think so. It's why I I preach and teach this stuff all the time. So next time, I'll chat about the fifth phase of the pump process. And if you like this content, please let me know by subscribing to the podcast. It really is an easy way to let me know that y'all are digging what I'm talking about here. So please, if you haven't, subscribe to the podcast. And as always, I want to thank you so much for spending some time tuning into the show listening to the episodes. I really appreciate you. I sincerely do. Thanks so much for your time. And I look forward to chat with y'all soon. Take care, everybody. And remember, wherever you are, keep moving. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of More to Movement with your host, Pete Rowletter. If you enjoyed the show, please visit moretomovement.com where you can find this episode's show notes along with more episodes and articles to empower you on your journey. 